Well, it is great to be with you today. Blessing to have the warm weather here in Virginia Beach. Uh, I was looking, see, you think I'm joking, but this morning in Richfield, Minnesota, it was a brisk minus 17. So uh, it's been, you know, a little nicer here, but I'm sure it's probably one of your coldest Sundays of the year. But it is a blessing to be here for many, many reasons. Uh, as Brent mentioned, we go back a long way to the sticks of Western Pennsylvania. And because of that long-standing close relationship we have, uh, we keep in touch. And I've heard a lot about you, about this church, about this ministry. And so I've prayed often for Brent and his pastoral ministry and for you. And so it is a joy to be together face-to-face. Uh, last year, in fact, we were scheduled, my family and I were scheduled to be here in March for the uh, Church Essentials Conference. And then at the last minute, you know, the whole world shut down and we couldn't come. So this is, uh, I feel like, long overdue and so good to be with you today on this Valentine's Day. And men, if you forgot about that, you have 30 minutes <laughs> to ponder where you can go this afternoon for a nice date. So, uh, but really, as I thought about a few weeks ago, a couple months ago, when uh, we knew we'd be here for Emma's wedding and then get the opportunity to preach and that it would literally be Valentine's Day this Sunday, I thought that uh, this would fit well with a topic that I have been thinking about studying quite a bit over the last few months, uh, the topic of love, but not so much our love for one another, uh, but, but really what's been on my mind and my studies has been the love of God. And so that's what we're going to eventually focus on this morning. You can look at Romans chapter 5. We're going to start working through the text, and eventually it'll lead us to one of the greatest texts in the Bible on the deep, deep love of God. Now, as you look at Romans 5, okay, we are, of course, jumping in to the middle of a great letter. But one of the nice things about our text today is it comes right at the beginning of a major section in Romans. So I think, you know, just for having one sermon, one study, it'll, it'll be easier to jump in because it's right at the beginning of a new, of a new section. We'll be able to grasp what Paul's doing. And if, if you want help when you read Romans, you know, to try to keep in your mind how does the letter unfold, especially the first eight chapters. So we read the end of chapter eight for the, for the scripture reading this morning. If you want to think, how do those eight chapters fit together? You pretty much just need to focus on Romans 5 verse 1, right? When Paul says, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, this is what we have. You see, if you think of the first eight chapters, the first four chapters are primarily Paul explaining and arguing for the major claims of the gospel that he's been going around the Roman world preaching. Specifically things like the bad news that everyone everywhere is guilty before God and under sin. But also the good news that anyone anywhere can be declared right with God simply through trusting what God has done through his son Jesus. That's, that's primarily the first four chapters is arguing and explaining and trying to prove those things. But when you come to chapter 5, Paul no longer is trying to prove those sorts of things. Instead, he begins to build on what he has already proved in the first 
four chapters. Uh, Specifically, he tries to take those precious gospel truths and connect them directly to real life. Like, what is life like now for a person whom God has said is righteous? What do we have now that we didn't have before? And uh, Paul begins the chapter by pointing out three blessings that we have today that at one point in our lives, none of us had. And, and this, isn't, this is in the first two verses. And this won't really be the focus of the sermon, but I want to read those two verses. I encourage your heart. Two, three things you have today that at some point in all of our lives, none of us had. Look at Romans 5, verse 1. Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So you have three blessings of being right with God. Peace with God, or as Paul will say at the end of our text this morning, we've been reconciled to God. The hostility between us and God has ceased. The war's over. Once we were enemies, now we are friends. Second, we have access into grace. Paul says a kind of grace that we can stand in. Like he's talking about grace as like a place, like a new realm that we've entered into where grace reigns, where we live under the smile and favor of a good and faithful king. And third, we now have hope of the glory of God. We don't usually say it this way. Hope of the glory of God. What does he mean? He's saying we have have confidence that one day, someday, we will all share in the glory of God. Or as Paul says later, this is maybe how we say it, we will be glorified. That one day our Lord Jesus will come to be reunited with us And these lowly, mortal, dying bodies will be flung aside for better bodies. Bodies that will be just like his glorious body. This is a sure and certain hope for every Christian. A hope so settled, so solid, that it gives the Christian settled, solid joy. Now, this is the last of those three. The hope of glory becomes the major theme of the rest of the text, and that's what's going to be our focus. In Paul's view, the future of every Christian is a reason to rejoice, but the time for rejoicing isn't only when we're thinking of the age to come. Of those days when these days of hardship will be distant memories. Now, for the Christian, there's reason for joy even now in the midst of of the hard days. Look at verse 3. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in or boast in or take pride in our sufferings. Now let that line just sink in. Not only do we rejoice in hope of the glory of God, the prospect of life beyond the grave, free from sin and suffering, we can also rejoice now in the suffering. Do you agree with that? 
is that really true? Like, how could that be true? And of course, Paul was not a guy who was unfamiliar with suffering. In fact, by this point in his life, I, I think it's fair to say he had probably experienced a kind of suffering in his life and hardship that, that most of us will never end up experiencing. And yet he, he writes this, that you can have joy even in the midst of, of that, if you're right with God. Why? Like, how is that true? And I just want to keep chasing these thoughts a little, a little more. Because when you think about your future hope, like, I don't know the last time you thought about it, but whenever that was, like, what's one of the, the greatest things you're looking forward to about the future? Or, or maybe you could switch the situation. You could say, let's suppose you are with someone, maybe a, a loved one of yours who knows the Lord, but that loved one is dying. Sick, suffering, and it becomes apparent they're on the verge of death. What is it that you would want to share with them? Like what promise of Scripture would you want to bring up to them in those moments. Like I, I can imagine that for, for just about all of us, we would, we would want to remind them of the hope of every Christian that on the other side of death, when you pass through this veil, there will be life and rest and peace and freedom from all the pain and all the sorrow. And I hope you would share that. There's no doubt that this is one of the greatest aspects of the hope of the Christian, to be free one day from suffering. It's a reason for joy, Paul says. But here's the thing. Paul goes further than saying we can just rejoice in the hope of that day down the road. He says in this verse, we can rejoice now, even in the days of suffering. But how, or maybe the better question is why? Why is that the case? Look at verse 3. Again, he says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Now, if you're new here, that thinking laid out right there is strange thinking about suffering. That is uniquely Christian. Could, now, could you follow the reasoning of that text? Why can those who are right with God rejoice even now in the midst of suffering? It's because we know that the sufferings we face, if we'll respond rightly to them, will produce something in us that we could not get in any other way than by going through the suffering. And what is that? Suffering produces endurance. If we'll submit to God and trust him through the suffering, we will come out different on the other side. See, God builds a kind of endurance in us through suffering that we cannot obtain in another way. And it's hard for me when I, I go through this text to not think of another book in the New Testament that I really like. It's my middle name. And, and I, so I think of it and how that book begins by saying the same thing. Do you know what book that is? Maybe it comes to your mind. Written to suffering Christians. And at the very beginning, the author says, 
Count it all joy. This is the book of James. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces what? Endurance or steadfastness. Same thing. But Paul doesn't stop there with endurance in this text. He says, no, as God strengthens our faith and builds our endurance, what does this then lead to? What does Paul say? The, the suffering produces endurance and the endurance leads to or produces character. So going through suffering builds our endurance and that endurance leads to proven, tested character. If you read James, he says going through the suffering produces endurance and that endurance leads you to becoming a complete or mature person. Or to put simply, these hardships, going through them the right way, leads you to become more like Jesus. And to put it most simply. And I want you to think about that. Is, isn't that, okay, becoming more like Jesus, isn't that actually what our hope is all about anyway? Isn't our hope all about sharing in the likeness and glory of Jesus? of looking just like him, of being fully and forever changed to be like our Savior. But listen, God has already started that work. In fact, from the very moment he declared you right with himself, God has been on a mission to make you like his son. But how does he do it? We well, can say, well, he does it in lots of ways. But one indispensable way that God does this in each of our lives is by bringing us not around suffering, but through it. The suffering leads to endurance. The endurance leads to character or more and more Christ-likeness. And here's the question. What does, what does seeing this gradual transformation happening in our lives, what is seeing it? lead you to have more of. Look at the text, verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings because suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. What is it that gives us greater assurance that one day, someday, we will fully and finally look like Jesus? Again, you could probably answer that in lots of ways. But right here, what gives us greater hope that that's going to happen someday is seeing it already happening to some degree now. Seeing God already changing you into the image of his son gives you greater confidence that the God who has begun this work in us will not stop short. He will finish it. Now, we can think of that. Brothers and sisters, we are not all that we should be, right? I know I'm not. I don't think you are. I don't know you that well. But I don't, I don't think you would say I'm all that I should be, right? But we are certainly not what we could be apart from Christ. And we are not what we were apart from Christ. God doesn't save anybody to leave that person the same as when he found him. God saves us to change us 
and he's already on the move. Already working. How? Well, not the only way, but one way he works in all of us and shapes us all to be what he saved us to be is through suffering. And so what does knowing this give the Christian the ability to do? We don't just rejoice in our future when there'll be no more suffering. We can rejoice even now in our suffering because God's at work in it to make us stronger, make us more like Christ, build and deepen our hope that he's going to finish what he started. And I love verse 5 where Paul says, and that hope does not and will not put us to shame. Now, there may be times of humiliation and shame for God's people now. There may be times of being rejected here, being held in disdain here. This is certainly true of brothers and sisters around the world, maybe becoming more true here in our own land. There may be shame in identifying with the sufferings of Christ here. But the hope we have will not put us to shame. On that final day, it will not disappoint. God will not let us down. The hope you've staked everything on, the hope that you, you cling to and you proclaim to others when you're suffering, can you imagine getting to the last day and having that hope disappoint? Can you imagine having God let you down on the final day? Paul says we can be sure that'll never happen. Our hope will never put us to shame. God will never let us down. Paul's sure of it. But here's the question. Are you sure of that? How confident are you that God will not let you down in the end? Do you ever doubt that? I mean, some might say, how can you or anybody really know that for sure? This is what Paul goes after the rest of the text in one of the most beautiful texts in the whole Bible. How do we know that God will not let us down in the end? Look at verse five. And hope does not, will not put us to shame. How do we know? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. If someone asks you, how can you be so sure that your future is secure, what would you say? You might, you might say several things. One you could say from the verses before this is, well, one of the things that gives me confidence is I already see God working in my life. And so it gives me greater assurance that he's going to finish what he started. That's, that's maybe from the verses before. But what about in this verse? What would be a good answer? How can you be so sure? I think a good answer would be, it's because I know deep down in my heart that God loves me. I don't say this because I'm arrogant or because I think I deserve anything, but I'm confident of my future 
because I know in my heart that God loves me. And, and since I know that he loves me, I just don't doubt him. He, I know he won't let me down. Now, I think this is the way the argument goes in the text. And I also think at first that this might surprise us, that Paul would put such emphasis on the experience, on this internal awareness of the love of God for us. But look at the verse again, verse 5. Hope does not, will not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. And pay careful attention to what he says. He doesn't say that we're sure of the future because God has poured out his spirit into our hearts. Though that is certainly true. And Paul talks that way in other places. And Paul will say even in Romans 8 and elsewhere that God's gift of the Holy Spirit to us now is like the down payment or the first fruits or the first installment of our future inheritance. But that is not exactly what he says here in this text. I think this might be the only time he says it this way. He does not emphasize how God has poured out his spirit into our hearts. Here he says, God has poured out his own love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who he's given to us. God has made us aware internally through his Holy Spirit that he actually loves us. This is one of the greatest ministries of God's Holy Spirit to us. Is that God's Spirit assures us internally, personally, that God really does love us. God's Spirit affirms in our hearts what Saint, uh, the old Saint Augustine once said, that God loves each of us as if there's only one of us. Now, now we probably knew before you came here that from the Bible that God loves you. And I can tell you that in a sermon, but I also know this, that it is only the Holy Spirit who can bring this good news home to your heart. It's God's Spirit who pours out God's love into our hearts who sheds abroad the knowledge that God really does love me. Paul knows this, and this is why he prays the way that he does in other places. Like, like in Ephesians, when he prays, he bows his knees and he prays for God's spirit to open our eyes and our hearts so that we'll be able to comprehend and know the love of God, the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. He prays that way because it's only the Spirit who can help us to really grasp it. I can say God loves you. You can tell your kids God loves you. And I say this today because I know he does, and you tell your kids that God loves them because you know he does. But it's only when God's Spirit brings those words home with power that you'll ever be able to rest in his love. Do you know that God loves us? It might change how we look at each other. This is a 
a place with, filled with people that God loves. But do you know that God loves you? If you do, then you know our hope will not disappoint. Paul grounds our hope first in our experience of the love of God. And now the Spirit fills up our hearts with the assurance that God really loves us. But lest we, we somehow think that God's love is merely subjective or that God's love is somehow not grounded in like real things, reality, Paul wants to take us somewhere. He wants to take us to a place because there is a place we can always go to see and to remember just how much God loves us. And he wants to take us there in this text. Look at verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. There is a place you can always go to see the love of God in real life. The lengths to which God would go to rescue you. Where? You can always go to the cross. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. You see, God's spirit doesn't like give us these just warm feelings that there's some God out there who, who kind of thinks favorable thoughts about us sometimes. Now, the love of God is grounded in real life. It's grounded in the cross of Christ. And what God's spirit does for us is he opens our eyes and our hearts to see the truth that what Christ did there, he did there for us here. Do you know that is true? Do you really believe that? And just to be clear, how shocking was what Christ did for us? I mean, notice what Paul says. Christ did, did what he did while we were still weak. Christ didn't die on the cross for the strong and competent. He died for the weak and needy. But not just that, Christ died for the ungodly. The depth of the love of God is shown in the kind of people Christ died for. Look at the next verses, verse 7 and 8. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Sure, Paul says you might hear of somebody sometime, somewhere, laying down their life for somebody else. It's rare, but it's possible you've heard a story like that. I mean, rarely someone might be willing to do that for a decent guy, decent lady, a righteous person. And perhaps if that someone was like a, a really good person or maybe somebody who had done a lot for you, given a lot for you, or you already cared about, you know, cause they've, they've done something for you, maybe someone would dare to die for a person like that. But the truth is, even when we hear stories like this, aren't we stunned by the sacrifice? Even if somebody lays down a life for a child, for somebody else, a friend, military person, taking it for brothers in arms, aren't we still 
stunned by the sacrifice. But this is the shocking nature of the love of God. God did not do that. He did not find the righteous or the good. And he certainly didn't find people who had done something first for him. Now, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We were not righteous people. We were not good people. Christ did not die for us because we were either righteous or good. Christ died for us because we were neither righteous nor good. This is the measure of the love of God in Christ for you. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we weren't asking for it. It's not like we repented in in sorrow and tears first and we're just pleading with God to find some way to forgive us for all the horrible things we had done. No, we were weak, ungodly, unrighteous, sinners, not looking for God, not even wanting God. And yet at that, at that very time, while all of that was still true, Christ died for us anyway. This is the love of God in Christ for you. But Paul's not finished yet because he has one connection he wants to make between what God did for us back then and what God will do for us one day. Look at verse nine. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more will we be saved by him from the wrath of God? That's the turn in the text. Do you see the connection? It's coming full circle. The connection between the cross and the future. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, how much more will we be saved by him from the wrath of God? This is a specific kind of argument Paul's making from the greater to the less. Be like me saying to my church up in Minnesota on a February morning, like, like the one today. I think it was negative 17 last week too. So not much different. <laughs> yeah, I could tell my church, you know, if we can handle this kind of winter here, surely we could handle winter in Hawaii. Because right, what's the point of that kind of argument? Right, if you can handle the harder, surely you can handle the easier. And that's what Paul's doing here. Look at the text again, verse 9. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, how much more will we be saved by him from the wrath of God? If the cost of our right standing with God was the blood of Jesus, and if Christ was willing to shed his blood for us back then so we could be right with God, how much more confident can we be that he'll save us in the end? From the wrath of God. If he was willing to die for us in the past, do you think he'll stop short of saving us in the future? And in case you didn't get what Paul's saying, he, he says this kind of thing just in a different way in verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more now that we are reconciled will we be saved by his life? Do you see it? If God was willing to send his son to the death for us while we were still his enemies, now that we're his friends, how much more will we be saved by his life? If he was willing and able to do the harder, 
Surely he will do the easier. And if Jesus himself was willing to pay the penalty for our sins back then, now that he is alive, risen from the dead, do you think he will fail to save us in the end? As Paul says in Romans 8.34, which we read earlier this morning, who is ever going to be able to condemn us on that day? No one since Christ Jesus died, but more than that, since he was raised, and more than that, since he lives at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. And so Paul concludes in Romans 5, verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we've now received reconciliation. There is joy for the Christian as we think of our future hope. There is joy for the Christian even in suffering. But more than anything, there is joy for the Christian in God. A God who sought us, bought us, wanted us, who loved us then, who loves us today, and will still love us tomorrow. There's joy in God all through Jesus who's brought us back to God. The unifying theme of the whole text today is one word, is the word hope. And so as we close, I want to put before us a few challenges in regard to hope. The first is that whatever it takes, we need to think more about the hope of glory. I've often said to others that one of my regular struggles throughout my Christian life has been that I tend to think of my hope of the future about as often as I am talking about it. What I mean by that is when I'm reading or teaching or preaching a section of the Bible that talks about hope, I think about it and it encourages me. But then once I'm away from those texts or those conversations, it's so easy to get so caught up in the busyness of life in all the suffering sometimes, all the, all the hard things, all the challenges, that I can lose sight for a long time of what ought to be part of my daily meditation. Think back to the last week. How, how would it impact or how would it have impacted your daily stress levels, your anxieties that you carried this last week? Maybe the sufferings that you went through. Maybe the conflicts that you had with others, which are usually not over that important of things. How would it have impacted those things, if, if you could have simply kept in mind the hope of glory and looked at those present things in light of it. One practical application, I, I, would, just, I would encourage you to start praying more with the future in mind. For example, I think you could take the things you prayed about last week, pray for them again this week. But pray for them with the future in mind. Bring them to the Lord in light of future hope. Like, what do you really long for for your kids? 
if you're praying for them in light of the future, or, or as you're thinking of this suffering that someone else is going through, that you're going through, and you're praying about it, and you're pouring your heart out to the Lord, would you pray about the same thing in light of your future hope of glory? If you read Paul's prayers, this is often how he prays. He prays in light of the, he prays for others in light of the future. But second challenge would be as God opens doors for us to talk with others who don't know Christ yet, my challenge would be try to share with them the hope you have. Because I think if we could ask Paul, and you could get examples of this from the New Testament, if you ask Paul, tell me what an unbeliever is like. Like, describe the life of somebody who doesn't know Jesus. I think one of the most basic explanations Paul would give or descriptions he would give would be, well, that's a person with no hope. And I think we can all say that this world we're in can sure seem like a hopeless place. But hope is one of the defining marks of the Christian. And when's the last time we talked with someone who doesn't know Jesus yet about the hope we have? I think Peter, Peter actually thought that this would stand out so much among Christ's people that there might be unbelievers who actually ask you for a reason for the hope that is within you. The, the third challenge would be with each other. Homes, church, small groups, what, I would just encourage us to remind each other of the hope we share. Because we're all, I think we all struggle to some degree to live in light of this. And remember, we all share the same thing. Like there's one Lord, there's one faith, there's one baptism, there's one God and Father of everything. There is one hope to which we've all been called. You ever encourage each other, push each other back to that? Like hope is not simply important for the dying. Hope is vital for the living. And we need to push each other to not get so focused on what is in front of us, but to look at it in light of future glory. And then last thing I want to remind us of is of the unshakable ground of our hope, which is nothing more and nothing less than the love of God. Maybe this morning, maybe for the first time ever, or maybe for the first time in a long time, maybe God's Holy Spirit has brought the love of God in the cross of Christ home to your heart. If you're not trusting in Christ, come to him today. Do you see the love of God in the cross of Christ? Turn to him and be saved. I mean, what are you waiting for? Or if you're a believer and you've been struggling with the love of God for you, I, I pray, I've been praying that God's Holy Spirit will pour out in your heart again in maybe a new and fresh way 
the love of God. Not just for people in general, but for you in particular. And if you're ever struggling with doubts about that, remember, there is one place you can always return. One place that stands fixed as the ever-present display and proclamation of the love of God for you. We can always go back to the cross. And may God keep bringing us back there all week long. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your love shown to us in the cross of Christ. I thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit who assures us of your love, of your acceptance. And I pray, I pray for my brothers and sisters here. Lord, I pray that you, by your Spirit, will bring these words home, that we might find joy and that we might find rest. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.